Artistic Whispers Productions presents Let us make man in our own image, said God. We create God. You're listening to Sculpting God, a podcast anthology written and read by J. Daniel Sawyer. These stories contain enough terror, sex, violence, and wonder to keep you awake all night. Sculpting God. Tonight, for our first episode, we play witness to a rather unusual cliff diving event. So join me now in the lowlands of Scotland at the turn of the 20th century for Angels Unawares. This is how it happened. I swear. What you are about to hear is the absolute unvarnished truth. I do not give a bugger at all what you read in the papers or the history books. It wasn't a suicide, and it wasn't a murder. I was there. I saw, and no one else did. The forensics do not mean a bloody thing because I know. And what I saw is more amazing than what they think happened. But I kept it to myself, just to be sure that no one would ruin it. Because I promised her, you see? And I had to keep the promise. No one could have broken it after seeing the look in her eyes. But I suppose first I'll fill in all of you who are joining the saga a little late. If you're new to this fair town, you may have missed the commotion a few years back when her body was found beaten against the rocks like so much driftwood. That wasn't the unusual part. A lot of people fell from that trail on the cliff. That's why they'd cordoned it off years before. It never stopped anyone from going down there, you understand? It just made it easier for the city when there was a fuss. A great spot for the spring for all it was. And of course, we were all up there as normal. When they find bodies down in the surf there, it's usually a suicide or an accident. You know, someone got off their melon on too much whiskey. But they're always normal people. She was unusual. And the lengths they went to to try and explain it made the whole town start locking their doors at night. They said she was mutilated. But they weren't sure if it was the fall that did it or something else. They said that trained policemen fought each other to avoid having to be near the body. It was hideous and beaten, and they'd never seen anything so brutally done. In the end, it was only her cloak that identified her. Oh, it was always her cloak that announced her. Dark it was, and seemed to fall about her like water. She always wore it up there at the frolics, even when one of the youths would bring a guitar or a penny whistle, and she'd dance for us with all those dances that would pull us away from the material world for a moment or three. Even then, the cloak was her companion. She liked it because it kept her safe in the shadows, blended right in when it was dark, no matter where she was. Glorious, shimmering dull blue, deep but faded, fastened around her neck with a dull golden braid. Thinking of it now, I realize 
that she and the clock seemed to be two expressions of a third hidden thing. Like she was a tired fairy from an older, forgotten world. But that's partly the misophon memory speaking. So they became convinced that she killed herself, though they couldn't imagine why. And eventually the memory of her faded into the ghost story that the younger ones hear from the old ones upon their first visit to the frolics. Everyone was sure it was a suicide, or that she'd been killed by a lover, an older married man that they fancied she'd been seeing. And partly the reason was that no one they questioned had seen her that night, after the moon rose. But I saw her. And I know what happened. We always called her Addy. One of the other young men who came to the frolics picked it up when his father was serving in India. He said it meant beginning. She was the first one to clear the grove on the bluff, and as far as anyone could remember, she had begun the spring frolics. I suppose the old druids would have called her the May Queen, or thought she was a dryad, but we had no use for superstition. The dawning prospect of the future had enough magic of its own. The 20th century was coming, nature was being conquered, and in our little lowland village, far away from the noise and the dirt and the factories at least, there was nowhere to look but forward and up. Of course, all of us knew her real name, though none of us knew her age, but Adi suited her better than the name she called herself, and it's how I always remember her. The sound of it was always soothing, and she seemed to me as ageless as the house she lived in. My father told me before he passed on that someone had always been up there. When he was a lad, he too had gone to the bluff and met a woman in the trees who lived in the hills, but that one had been a minstrel, (laughs) and Adi was no minstrel. If pressed, she might have been able to squawk. It was early May, late enough that the rain had stopped the pretense of snow and contented itself with merely being wet. Ten or fifteen of us went up to the grove on the bluff as often as we could to catch the scent of the changing seasons, to dance and play, to wrestle with the lassies among the tall grasses and to watch the moon set out on the sea. Someone had brought a book of poetry that night and we handed it around with the Glenfiddich, reading to each other while the wind came up. On that cold night, the drink was like hot butter, coating the inside with warmth, smooth as a woman's neck. When mixed with the pine fire and the smell of drizzle, the glow of faces in the firelight, the sound of Shelley being read in the halting voice of a 17-year-old Scots lad, it seemed to thin the veil between the worlds. It was a night that felt more real than any other. Perhaps because it was as unreal as any I have yet lived. An evening when, for a moment, time stepped outside itself and flirted with eternity. When that first happened upon the grove as a twelve-year-old explorer, it seemed the perfect place for a hideaway. The tall grasses and the thistles grew around it and made it all the more private for being a nearly impenetrable grove of pines. It wasn't really clear in the middle, but there were endless tunnels and paths wending their way through the trees and under the bushes. One of them led to the bluff above the ocean with a view so long you could almost see the continent peeking out over the horizon. 
I started bringing my friends up there. At first it was just other lads from school. After all, what group of schoolboys doesn't need a place to retreat to, to smoke and drink dad's pilfered scotch, to brag about imaginary conquests, to dream about finally growing up, and to share the old spook stories that we'd all heard in the nursery. We made plans about hiking in the highlands, joining the RN, getting away to the cities where life was wild and free. It was the place we stole away to when we ducked church to read the subversive books that the priest never preached from. Eventually we started bringing the lassies along, using the beauty and secrecy of the place to find out exactly why. The breasts were like two fawns running in a field to learn about the peculiar lilt of a lass's voice that could make you fall asleep contented and to learn exactly how many scratches thistles can give you while you're concentrating on other things. No one really knew when Addie started showing up. Looking back, it feels like she'd always been there, hiding just outside the firelight. When finally she showed herself, no one thought to ask where she came from. I don't really think anyone cared. She knew the stories that kept us all coming back. And not just the old stories about sleepwalkers and fairies, but the real stories behind them. The stories of armies getting lost in the fog, of great battles won and lost to keep Scotland free, of times long forgotten in arid lands far, far away. She told us how the sleepwalkers were invented to explain why the wildcats only came out at night and how the old bones of the world frightened the ancient Pict. She taught us about life, brought us news of the outside world. She didn't look much older than we did, but she understood the whys. She taught us to love the world we were in, even though we all wanted to grow up and move away. Under her, we learned patience to save her life as it went by and not to be pushed under by cares. We learned to love life because it was real and to love stories because they were not. She taught us gratitude even for sorrow. She taught us what it meant to be alive. And that night, Adi sat behind the circle, watching with her eyes glowing in the firelight, looking for all the world like a raven eye in an egg. Her eyes were bright with mystery, smiling at the clumsy joy and the comradeship around the fire. She took the drink when it was passed to her and then the book. But when she opened it to read, she stood and stepped into the circle and she read. She couldn't sing a single note, but when she read in a voice full of sorrow, like a willow branch weighted down with too much snow to the breaking point, her voice was music. But that night, it did not throw us to sing. Although I do not remember the words she spoke, I do remember the sound. It was the sound of deepest regret, the loss of a mother whose children were grown. It was the last frolic. We'd all finally reached maturity. We were moving on, having a last evening together before the first lads shipped out with the RN. In the cold of the night, in the glow of the fire, her voice was the strength of weakness and loss. When she was done, we sat around for a long, long time, looking at each other, knowing truly for the first time that something magical was ending. 
She passed the book, and the readings continued, but what had been a frolic had become a meditation. I was actually surprised when couples started fading into the shadows as was customary. I was not ready for the night to end, and although the closeness of the lass on my arm was comforting, I wanted to be alone. Before the book came around to me again, I stood and faded into the shadows myself. I quietly stepped back from the fire and took the path leading down to the edge of the bluff. The pale sliver of the waning moon overhead threw just enough light to pick out the path amid the low brambles. A chill wind blew up from the sea below, carrying the usually distant sound of the waves straight up to me. I couldn't see many stars through the scattered clouds, but the moon glimmered faintly in the waters below. It felt as if the world were changing around me, as if I wasn't walking completely in the realm of flesh and blood. And despite the wind, the air felt still and portentous. I couldn't hear any owls or other sounds of the night. It felt like there should have been a mist in the air, but there was none. Rather, that was clear all the way to the dark horizon. I pulled my lamb-lined oilskin tight around me to keep out the cold, but I did not want to return to the warmth of the fire and my friends. I do not know how long I stood there on the cliff looking out to the sea, but when I turned away I caught a glimpse of her a few yards down the bluff. She stood little more than a darker shadow against the pale dark sky, gazing at the water as I'd been doing, and I was surprised to discover that I wanted to know more about her. Oh, she told us about herself, about her parents, about being raised in the hills outside of town and travelling to visit the family in London for the holidays, and I certainly knew her well enough. We'd shared many moments around the fire <laughs> and in the heather, enjoying the camaraderie of the group and the more private moments of discovery. I'd talked long with her over the years. She was, after all, my friend. But I was suddenly seized with the notion that I didn't know her at all. As if our time together, all that time, had been merely a dream. And I was truly seeing her tonight for the first time. As I walked over to her, across the brambles and the grasses, she turned to me, cloak clasped shut with one hand, and cocked her head to one side, pulling the mottled wind-blown hair out of her eyes. Her bare feet and legs held her up against the wind, and she seemed small. For the first time since I knew her, she seemed small. Addy. I called out to let her know it was me. Yes? She looked at me as if I had interrupted something very private, and I stopped for a second while she studied me. Standing there, against the grey of the sea and the blue-black horizon, she seemed pensive and vulnerable, more so than I'd ever known her to be. And yet, it seemed improper to approach, so I began to turn away. Never mind. I walked a couple steps and she called out to me. Wait. Please? I turned back and walked towards her. Are you sure I'm not intruding? I arrived at her side, and she dropped her hand and turned back towards the ocean. No. I thought I wanted to be alone, but I'd rather have you here. 
I just wanted to look at it one more time before I go. You're leaving too? Johanna said. I... I stumbled and stopped. Even though I was going away to the university in a few weeks, I had trouble imagining that place without her presence. Where are you moving to? I'm going home. Home? Her home was in the hills. I had walked her there many times. I'd seen her room. I knew her siblings. I thought this was your home. No. She said. I haven't been home in a long time. I let the comment pass, not knowing what to say to it, and we shared a long moment standing by each other, looking out over the vast expanse of the dark water. I've wanted to go home for so long. Never thought the day would come. She said. She seemed far off, even as she unconsciously took my hand. I never thought I'd miss this place. But now I almost can't bring myself to leave. I thought you'd always been here. No. I was sent to accomplish a task. I turned and looked at her, baffled, but with her gaze in the drift from the sea. And now it's done. I was to return when it was done, but... Her voice trailed off, as if there was nothing more to say. You can always come back for a visit. I'll be back on break from university to visit my family, and others will come back for the holidays. She looked at me, <laughs> amusement and tenderness fighting over her gaze, and I saw for the first time that she'd been crying. I reached up and brushed a tear away from her face. No, she said. You don't understand. I'm not like you. I can't come back. You, all of you, have grown up, so my time is done. I've helped you all I can. I don't understand. But she put her finger to my lips to silence me, and then gently kissed me. Thank you. She smiled. She let go my hand and stepped back from me towards the cliff and turned once again to look out at the sea. She dropped her arms and let her cloak fly free behind her in the wind, bearing her body beneath to the night air. For a moment, I thought she was going to jump, so I stepped towards her. But when the wind caught her hair, she began to glow. All around her, the grass, her cloak, her body, her hair seemed to be on fire with a warm, dim, phosphorescent orange glow. It started like a halo, but quickly the wind whipped up and it seemed to pull the light farther away from her. A pale, shining copy of her form, blurring behind her like a trail of yellow fire. The wind built and built until her cloak was thrown out almost straight behind her and she seemed to be flying even while her feet were still on the ground. She swelled up, breathing deeply the cold wind. Her eyes, which had been clenched tight shut, relaxed as if she was sleeping, yet still held aloft by the wind. And then the fire seemed to leave her, not dying out, but separating from her, by inches clinging to her cape and hair like tendrils. The tendrils, one by one, let go. And when the last one let go, the entire glow caught the wind and flew away towards the mountains. I watched it fade, too dumbstruck to say anything. 
but when I looked back, her body had collapsed half over the cliff. There was nothing I could do. Before I could get to her, she slid over the loose gravel at the edge. I looked down after her, but the night was too dark to see anything. I wanted to jump down after her and save her, wanted to run back to the fire and get help. But even as these thoughts crossed my mind, I knew it was no use. She was gone, and whatever was left at the base of the cliffs was only her vehicle. I do not know how long it took me to walk home that night. The moon was still in the sky when I lay down in my bed and looked out my window, but the entire household was silent. I fell asleep, wondering just what she was. I wonder still. But it wasn't a suicide, and it wasn't a murder. I know. I saw. I was there. You have been listening to Angels Unawares, written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer with special guest voice Marissa Torres. Music kindly furnished by the following Podsafe Music Network affiliated artists. Texan folk group The Brobdenagian Bards, Spanish composer Green Druid, Dutch rocker Tiger Tail, and Belgian artist Cecily Moss. Opening quote by Voltaire. Sound design, recording, mixing, and post-production services for Angels Unawares, courtesy Artistic Whispers Productions. This production is available under a Creative Commons Attribution No Derivatives license, and the story upon which it's based is copyright 2002 by J. Daniel Sawyer. All rights reserved to the author. And that's our premiere episode for Sculpting God. In forthcoming podcasts, we'll have, of course, listener feedback, but we're also going to have a bunch of stories from mixed genres. There are some romances, some horror, some science fiction, and quite a lot of mystery. Several of the stories here that you'll be hearing are ones that people quite literally asked me, what possessed you to write that? In this case, it's not an unreasonable question. It did feel like I was being possessed while I wrote it, and it came to me almost out of nowhere. Here's how it happened. In the summer of 2002, I was doing a shoot with a model on the cliffs above Stinson Beach in California. We got there at sunset and the full moon came up as the mist was coming in. We were doing some costume shots to break in my new camera and because it was a new camera and I was new at photography, we didn't get a whole lot done that was any good. But in the detritus, I found two pictures. One I snapped while the model was asking me for direction. The ocean was behind her, there was a pensive look on her face, and you could barely make her out in the dark. Just enough for the mystery to draw you in. The other was her standing in the wind, looking out to sea, arms outstretched, cape blowing out straight behind her. Looking at these pictures next to each other, they seemed to tell a story. And I was thinking about the story when the quote from St. Paul floated across my mind, We have entertained angels unawares. And that's where the story came from. J.R.R. Tolkien pointed out in his essay on fairy stories that the best stories are the ones about growing up, and that encourage their readers to grow up and stand on their own. Through the years, all my favorite fantasy stories have been this kind. From The Ring Cycle, to The Lord of the Rings, to The Chronicles of Thomas Covenant, all of them are about humans killing the gods and learning to cope with their absence, in the same way that young adults have to, in some sense, do away with their parents and learn to stand on their own. Angels Unawares is that kind of story. 
where the last of the gods is a pedagogue who literally ascends to heaven to leave her human children to their own devices. It's not a coincidence that it's set at the end of the 19th century, when humanity was finally coming en masse out of superstition and into the terrifying power that we discovered through our own interrogations of nature. The stories of Sculpting God are all about this. They are without exception epiphany stories. They're stories about how humans relate to their higher ideals, of fleeting encounters with the universe, and of lingering questions of divinity. These stories will keep on every week or three through the entire run, about ten stories, at which point I'll move on to podcasting my science fiction, espionage thriller, predestination, and other games of chance. But more about that later. I'm also looking for promos to play during the show. If you've got a podcast you want to pimp, send a promo of two minutes or less my way. I'll throw it into the banter section at the end of the cast. I hope you enjoyed the story. Send feedback to feedback at jdsawyer.net or leave audio comments at area code 206-376-1925. I'll play them even if they're pretty insulting. And you can also keep up with my authorial doings at jdsawyer.net. And be sure to check out my article on video editing in this month's Linux Journal magazine. i got to make a living after all. Tune in next time for The Coffee Service, a horror story about an unpleasant delivery from the UPS man. Until next time... Sculpting God is written and directed by J. Daniel Sawyer. Some sound effects courtesy The Free Sound Project at freesound.iua.ufp.edu Remaining sound effects courtesy Artistic Whispers. Web design production and post-production services provided by Artistic Whispers Productions, Castro Valley, California, www.artisticwhispers.com. Theme music for the podcast was provided by the Podsafe Music Network artists 100-Year Picnic and 2012. Find author's blog and podcast feeds at www.jdsawyer.net. Thank you for listening.